Texas talking oh. What was that that you said Texas talking oh. Gonna hoop upside your head Texas talking Tell me who can you trust When Texas guys Hi, this is State Senator Connie Burton, and you're listening to the Texas Tribune Tribcast, which I've been assured receives exactly zero taxpayer dollars. I want to invite the entire cast and crew of the Tribcast up to the Fort Worth Stockyards this summer so they can tour Senate District 10, but mostly so we can see Evan in a cowboy hat. Now, here's your beautiful and talented host, Emily Ramshaw. I think we can all agree that was the best intro ever. Uh, This is Emily Ramshaw here with the Tribcast for the second week of April. I'm joined by CEO and Editor-in-Chief Evan Smith. Hey, Reeve. (laughs) Reporter Alexa Ura. Hello. And Border Bureau Chief Julian Aguilar. I haven't slept in three days. Three? How's that? (laughs) Blame Donna Campbell. Um, And Judge Hainan. And Judge Hainan. We'll get to that, I'm sure. Poor guy. Let's and get... anybody else you want to name? Is that just, just those two? That's a good start? Well, you guys, but I mean, uh, well, since we've already gone down that path, why don't we switch gears here a little bit uh, and talk about the reasons that Julian has been up so many nights this first, week. Yeah. Leave sleep for the last half, actually. Right. So the first of those is the, the GOP-led effort to repeal in-state tuition for the kids of undocumented immigrants. Uh, and there was a, a hearing one night this week that I don't think wrapped up until about three in the morning, uh, unfortunately. One of the editors actually had to edit that story at three in the morning. It wasn't me, thank God. Uh, Julian, tell us, uh, give us sort of the lay of the land. What's going on with with this fight? Well, originally uh, Senator Bob Hall had filed it and referred it, it was referred to state affairs. They didn't get a hearing, so uh, very quickly um, Senator Donna Campbell filed the exact same bill. It was read, referred, and uh, on the same day, and it got a hearing immediately. Uh, the hearing was postponed a week because Senator Lucio's brother uh, passed away suddenly. But it was what everybody expected. There were 167 people that um, signed up to testify, and five of them were for the bill. Wow. I mean, and, and the, people you, the people you saw in the room, I was just watching, you know, uh, luckily I wasn't in the room and I was just watching from my couch. But we saw, you know, people in, you know, students basically in caps and gowns. I mean, what was the tenor of the conversation? I mean, it was what you would expect. You know, a lot of people shared their success stories. A lot of people cried. You had, um, you know, mothers that were testifying. Um, a lot of them didn't speak English and said, you know, this was essential to my kids, you know, achieving their what they think is the American dream. You, I mean, you've heard the story over and over. These kids were brought here through no fault of their own. They've succeeded. Some of them don't even speak Spanish. They say, you're going to send me, you know, you guys, you know, if, if there's no Dream Act, if there's no DACA, if you guys want to deport everybody, you know, this is going to be really bad. And, and the resource witnesses uh, didn't didn't do the Senate panel um, any good. Um, Steve McCraw walked in, Colonel Steve McCraw from DPS, and everybody, I, when he walked in, and people were looking at the agenda, like, what else is on the agenda? Why is he here? And I asked him, I was like, what are you doing here? He's like, I'm a resource witness, I think. So what Senator Campbell tried to get from him is that this in-state tuition policy is, in fact, a magnet, and obviously everybody saw what witness would happen He last wasn't summer. going there. No. Mm-mm. No, she, she pressed him, and she said, well, uh, actually, he was sitting next to um, uh, Raymond Paredes, the uh, commissioner of the Higher Education Coordinating Board. Who also wouldn't go there. Right. Well, she, you know, he, I mean, he, she kept asking him, and he said, you know, we've had no schools that I know of have, have voiced any complaints about this policy. He said, community college enrollment is down. He's like, I think that community colleges would like to keep this policy to get their enrollment up. 75% of the kids that benefit from this policy, there's about 25,000 in the state. That's 1.9% of the college-age population. And the amount of money we're talking about right. in 50- tuition forgiveness is really in a budget of 107 
billion, right. according to the spending cap, pretty insignificant. Sure. Um, so how do you reconcile if you've got the state's higher ed commissioner and the you know and and the top brass at DPS basically saying this is a non-issue. This did end up passing out of this subcommittee, sure. correct? Yeah, and then it'll, and it'll pass out of the, the Veterans ele- Affairs Because committee. elections have consequences, because it's not 27 million people who matter. It's the people who vote and ultimately elect the people who decide on these issues that matter. If you don't vote, you don't affect the outcome of elections. Right. If you don't affect the outcome of elections, you put a majority in place in the Senate that does what the people who elected them put them there to do so, what's so the path forward for this it's, legislation? It's, it's politics. I mean, I mean, this is tricky, right? Because it sounds like this has support in the Senate, but it looks yeah. like the House is going to say, Mm-mm. "I mean, <laughs> exactly." Will it be Speaker Charles making that noise that. specifically? Will yes. it be that noise? You can ask him. That's uh, so. I mean, two things are at play here: how much time is left in the regular session? Will Governor Abbott call a special session for this issue? Likely, or other not. issues in which this gets tucked in like sure. a turducken, right? <laughs> Spoken like a true well, vegetarian. Session turducken. <laughs> right. Is that a football reference? Oh, my God, he went there. Sure. <laughs> I'll say yes. With so there's fewer than, what are we at, you know, 54 days left in the session, something like that. Who's counting? <laughs> but, but there's also a calendar with a big X. But even within, but even within the 54, day. there's a limited amount of time a, sure. so, all right, for so a bill to come to the floor. It'll right? go to the full committee of the Veterans Affairs and Military Installations. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if I got that exactly right, but so it'll get kicked out of there. It'll go to the full Senate probably pretty quickly. Then it goes to the House. When does it get read? When does it get referred? Where does it go? Does it Who go is, to? Yeah, we don't yet know who's responsible for it. No. So if it goes to higher ed, uh, Chairman Zerwas has already said I think it's a good policy. I stand by you know Governor Perry, what he did in 2001. Um, it, yeah, sure, it's a compassionate issue, but it's also an economic right. issue. If it goes to state affairs, where it has a larger chance of just kind of getting lost in the shuffle because there are more bills referred there, Chairman Cook has been on board saying, well, you know, tell me what to do with these kids. What's the solution? Right, and yeah, he's very sympathetic to the kids. Didn't the speaker also, Alexa Julian, sure. say to Jim Henson earlier this year in an interview at the beginning of the session that he wasn't necessarily uh, eager to overturn this? I don't want to say that he flat out still supports in-state, but my recollection is he wasn't. I think he does. He, he said that he would rather have a generation of of givers, not takers. Did, but, did, but did he say specifically, I support the current policy? My recollection is he walked up to that line but didn't cross it. Uh, yeah, I don't think he jumped in head first. So, so, but he, so put yourself in Joe Strauss's position. You're now... Joe Strauss has no interest in this legislation. So put right? yourself... Let's take that to be true. So put yourself in Joe Strauss's position. Joe Strauss is going to ultimately be the one to refer this bill, right? That's that's the job of the speaker in this case. Um, why would he refer it to a committee that's likely to, if he's not for this, why would he refer it to a committee that's likely to he wouldn't. To follow the Senate in lockstep. So you think, Julian, that the House ultimately slows the Senate's role on this yes. and this goes nowhere? Even if it does kick out of a committee, which it, you know, it might happen, what happens in calendars? Do you think the 150 in the House, if you did an up or down vote on this issue, that the votes are there to overturn? A simple majority. Are there seventy six to overturn? If, Probably. If it, if it, I mean, I've heard from from border Democrats and you know saying if it gets to the House floor, we're screwed. Yeah, my sense is that the votes are there. Yeah, but see, that's the whole play, right? I mean, if you gave that's if why you, leadership matters. If you gave the entire <laughs> yeah. chamber truth serum, right? You okay, know. so so then to to be um, uh, provocative here for a second, this validates the argument that's been made all along by grassroots conservatives that in the end, leadership does matter, committee chairs do matter. And getting floor, uh, bills to the floor of the House matters. Right. 
Sure, it yeah. absolutely matters. You know, right? It does, you know, as conservative as the House may have been in previous sessions and maybe this session, in the end, this stuff does matter. The question to me is how big of a priority is this for like a Dan Patrick in the Senate? Is it a big enough priority that he would, you know, slow roll other stuff in order to make sure that, that you know, the House whole, is put under things pressure? things that the House right. might want hostile I mean, how to big of a priority I mean, is in this? the campaign, it was a huge part of that. Right. And right. we heard from him all the time on this issue. And even, I think it was when Senator Lois Kokors was running, she said that he had sort of asked her to lead the charge. It ended up being Donna Campbell. But there's been sort of this conversation around it. They've been ramping up to this for so, a while. So vote count for us in the Senate. So you've got 20 Republicans, all 20 on board with this? I'm assuming so, sure. You don't think there's any a, a Seliger or an Eltife who might well, step up? Well, Seliger maybe. That's, voted that's for it in right. 2001. But when I talked to him a couple months ago about this, he's, he kind of said, you know, well, we're going to consider what comes to the floor. In fact, there are a lot of people who voted for it in 2001 to the degree that there are a lot who are still here from 2001. There are a lot of those who were here who voted for it, who I've heard say to me personally, I'm not necessarily for it. Right. Well, I mean, and look at Patrick's, our reporter Patrick Svitek interviewed Rick Perry in South Carolina yesterday and basically said to him, so, you know, let's talk about this state tuition deal in the Texas legislature. And Perry basically said, I supported it then when, you know, when I signed it. Right. Patrick was like, well, what about now? Right. Kind and of Perry was like, tone it's up to the legislature. Well, in fact, yeah. back in September when I sat with him at the Tribune Festival, he had a very different point of view than the one he, we heard from Patrick yesterday. Right. He was not neutral about it. He was like, look, I thought it was the right decision at the time. And and uh, my intention, he said, in essence, if not these words, is I'm still for it. Um, and he and he was he was a, a complimentary of George P. Bush, who the previous uh, weekend, a couple days before that same weekend, had said effectively the same thing, that unless you come up with a, an alternative for these kids, I'm, I'm basically for the policy as it, as it exists. So the, the, the politics of this are interesting. Mm -hmm. I think the way we presented the story was particularly interesting because I, the headline on our story was, despite overwhelming opposition, well, the opposition was from the people who testified. Sure. Do you think, Julian, the reason that the testimony was so heavily weighted in one direction was because the people who are for the overturning of the law knew that it didn't matter that they get a bunch of people that are testify. They knew they had the vote, so why why put on a show? Yeah, why come all the way to Austin? Why right. sit in the committee room for 12 hours? Because they know the the eventual outcome in the Senate. But again, right. going back to what you said about getting on the House, and then another thing, you know, Exhibit B, Sanctuary Cities. Right. Same issue. Another one that right. uh, basically slid through without, you know, opposition to it in the testimony, notwithstanding the votes were there. Right. 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 Mm -hmm. um, it's so interesting to see direct democracy not ultimately matter. Well, right, you've got you've got these people who come and they testify and they think their testimony matters and on some respect in some respects it does, but at the end of the day, all the testimony in the world doesn't overturn the results of an election. Well, and let's be Come blunt here. I mean, lawmakers go into these rooms, right, with their minds they know, made up. They know I mean, for doing. so many of these committee hearings, it's right. really just a, a you know, a, a ridiculous stunt. It's a show you know. trial, it's basically. Totally well, right. Donna Campbell even said at one point, no school came to me with this. You know, this isn't a concern that's coming from the institutions of higher ed. It's it's the politics. Can I say one it. more word on this? I know you want to move on to something else. There continues to be, and Senator Campbell, you know, peace on this, but I don't understand it. Somebody still has to explain to me why this is right. Senator Campbell made the argument I've heard Senator Patrick make, I've heard, then Senator Patrick, now Lieutenant Governor, and others make, that somehow this is about admission slots. Didn't she say at the end of the day, if there's a slot at UT or yeah, A&M? It's not about it's, and, and, and the commission said I the think same that thing. people are conflating on this issue, right. admission and tuition. Yeah, this right. is not about admission. And on that note, they also there's a... a 
a perception out there that's wrong that these there are some grants that these kids can qualify for. Right. It's a very very small percentage, but you know you, you look at Twitter and you look at Facebook, you look at the comments saying why should we be you know why should we be paying for their education? No, they're, they're paying for their own education. It's just at an in-state rate. Um, but what you were talking about the slots, Commissioner Padilla said that's not an issue. Maybe at UT, which has been you know going back and forth with the top. 10%, top but how, 7%, but, but hold top on, Help me understand this. How would it be an issue with UT? So UT has a limited number of slots. They all do, but UT is a particularly challenged admissions environment sure. right now. So UT is not making decisions on the basis of who can pay. If you, UT if, is making decisions on the basis of who gets in. Who gets in, sure. But if merit, you, if, merit or whatever. But if you if you offer somebody admission, and you but they have to pay an out-of-state rate, they might say, okay, well, maybe I can't. And that will let somebody that can't afford. Right, they'll give up the spot. R- right, but right. that happens. I mean, wh- why, why is admissions related in any way to tuition. Theoretically, this is a two-step deal. They make a decision on the basis of who gets in. Kids who are not documented have the ability to apply and get in. Right. They get in. At that point, they make a calculation about whether they can afford it. Sure. UT could very easily make the exact same admissions decisions in the absence of in-state tuition. Getting rid of in-state tuition rates for undocumented would not change the admissions calculations for any of these schools one bit. Well, like you said, it's the politics of it. How is this a border security issue? And I just want to say one more thing about democracy in action. It is not, in my mind, democracy in action when you are forcing people to stay in these, you know, committee rooms where they can't eat or drink or hardly move for, you know, 12 hours, 15 hours. I mean, what kind of people can leave their jobs or school, you know, to sit in these rooms or, or, or who don't have childcare, you know, to stay until three in the morning waiting yeah. to testify. And then the, I mean, their, their names are called. And But I, I will say this. I will give Senator Birdwell a lot of credit. He was very gracious with his time. He let three Democratic senators that are not on the committee sit there. You were complimentary of Birdwell. Yeah, because, you know, he, I mean, he was he was forceful. He said, no outbursts. He said, we're going to move on, you know. But he he would let these folks finish up. He would say, all right, if they were called, oh, I'm sorry, you know, they were in the overflow room. And he would give them a chance to speak. But to your point, you're exactly right. You know, and there were some kids that would, that would have testified, but they had to catch a bus back to North Texas. Right. All right, uh, let's head to San Antonio uh, for to talk just for uh, a few minutes about the mayor's race. We're uh, seeing a lot of familiar faces in that race. Evan, you moderated a, a panel this week, correct? I or moderated forum? what I think was the 8,000th <laughs> joint candidate forum. In fact, it might have been the 8,000th this week. I believe that actually there had been three yesterday. Goodness. So the, 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 four, the four candidates right. for mayor Walk came, the four, from, yep. came from an event to our event in the afternoon, then we're going on to another event. Folks must be getting sick of each other. I want to acknowledge that in a t- at a time when there are fewer rather than more of these joint candidate appearances and races, you got to give these four credit. All right, the who are our four candidates? candidates are Bear County uh, Precinct 4 Commissioner Tommy Atkinson, who is a veteran politician in Bear County, very familiar face on the scene. The relatively new interim mayor of San Antonio, Ivy Taylor, who had been a council member elected by her peers to be the interim mayor after Julian Castro left for D.C., initially said she was not going to run. One of the reasons that she was chosen by her council members, fellow council members, was that she had indicated she'd be a placeholder but was not intending to run for a, for a full term on her own as mayor, changed her mind. Leticia Van Depew, the longtime state senator from San Antonio, who, like Mayor Taylor, had said explicitly, I'm not going to run when she was running for lieutenant governor, then lost the lieutenant governor's race and then decided to run, in fact. And Representative Mike Virial. It's hard to leave politics. Because the pay is so great. Right. And then Representative Mike Virial, a former representative who uh, stepped away after being reelected in November from the seat he was to have been sworn into to be a candidate for mayor. Uh, at a time when Van Depute had said she was not running, and so he ran, and many people endorsed him, thinking that she was serious about not running. Th- this is not 
a, a forest full of saplings. This is a forest full of redwoods. Let's acknowledge that, first of all. This is for serious people. Anyone could be mayor on day one based on their experience and their knowledge of the issues. Um, the conventional wisdom is that Van Depute, because of her high name ID and her long service to San Antonio, is the leader. And if, if you believe the gossip about polls, uh, that would be confirmed. That the Van gossip is, about polls. There's been Has there been public polling released? I don't believe there's been public polling. There's a lot of discussion of polls that the campaigns mm-hmm. are aware right. of. Everybody's like, well, my third poll. Parties have I done. can't show you my poll, poll, but mine is looking <laughs> you know, great. I, I, thought, I have to tell you, the biggest surprise for me in moderating this debate there were sort of two big things that I took away. One was that everybody is firing at Van Depute, and 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 it was particularly over her endorsement by the police union and her position on the on the police contract. Um, there was a you know there was a discussion, an allegation by Mayor Taylor that they were very close on getting a new police contract, and that the police walked away and endorsed Van Depute. And so that basically politics has gotten in the way of the city's ability to get a handle on this contract. Villarreal talked about the police contract a million times, that they need to do a better police contract to somehow redirect resources that are currently going to some of these uh, contracts to other priorities for the city or to get a handle on on expenses or, or costs in the, in the police and firefighters contracts. Um, Van Depuy's endorsement by the police is obviously something she's very proud of, but she took heat from both Villarreal and Taylor for somehow accepting the police uh, union's endorsement in exchange for some undetermined or undisclosed promise to deal with the contract in a certain way. So everybody shooting at Vanderpute was interesting to me. She's obviously, uh, if the perception of her being in the lead is true, this would be a, 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 an indication of that because right. why, why fire at somebody who's mm-hmm. not the front? The it's, second thing I thought was interesting was Ivy Taylor was really good in this debate. She's not the most loquacious person in the world. You know, if you ask Vanderputer Viral a question, they'll fill not only their time, but everybody else's right. time if you allow them A little them filibuster to. action. Ivy Taylor g- gives kind of short, efficient answers, and she can be mistaken for not being um, particularly deep or grounded in the details. But over, over the course of what was a two-hour forum, I found Taylor to actually be a lot tougher and a lot better steeped in the particulars of this. She's a wonk. She's in fact a public policy professor at UTSA. Mm-hmm. You know, she she doesn't like a Bill White. She doesn't type set candidate. up. She doesn't set up necessarily as kind of the classic gregarious politician. But I thought she she held her own and was very tough. And she plays whether she intends to or not as the most small C conservative person up on that stage. And you know, in a race that we just saw decided by small C conservatives jumping on the Jose Menendez bandwagon and defeating Trey Martinez Fisher, who a lot of people, hell, I'll say I, thought was likelier to win that race than not. We we're a little surprised by Menendez pulling it out. I wonder if the business community might decide in the end, if it gets down to, say, Van Depute and Taylor in a runoff, that Taylor is their better option and that Taylor Menendez is Van Depute. I mean, could here. the big D's sort of devour each other and leave a little C well, hanging I, out? I don't know enough about San Antonio politics to say this for sure, but I have to believe that Villarreal and Van Depute are probably taking votes away from one another. Right. There's some history there also. Isn't there, it's there? not entirely positive blood, right. good blood between them. I also can't tell whether Tommy Atkinson is in this race as, you know, play by play or color. Is he the Bob Euchre of this race? He seems like a throwback, kind of old white guy, been in that county commission, county commissioner's seat for a long time. He obviously has a lot of experience, knows everything, but is he the most forward-looking or forward-thinking of, the, of them? 
I, I will say that uh, that I thought again I thought Taylor did I thought Taylor held her own. So what's going on? Has there been there's been some sort of ethics uh, questions raised? Something around the around the campaign? Something having of- to do with Van Depute dumping three hundred thousand dollars or so from her state account into the account she's using from her to help. from her lieutenant governor campaign account right. into the mayor into the mayoral account. Is that allowed? Question as to whether that was the the or. question that Villarreal's campaign brought up was whether those donations had exceeded the thousand dollar cap that's on the mayoral donations. And so they wanted to double, t- you know, they were saying that, that some of those might have exceeded And, and that. that Virial was saying that uh, Vandepute actually needed, if the if process and protocol were gonna be followed, to return that money to the donors and then ask them if they wanted to donate for the mayor's race and then essentially re-donate the money back to her. Right. Apparently Villarreal did some version of this with his state rep account, I think. In any case, he filed an ethics complaint or talked about filing an ethics complaint and the Vandepute campaign reversed course and did something differently over the last couple of days and has essentially made the issue go away. She is under fire in this race, which would confirm the sense that she may be the front runner. And look, she's a very well-known person. You would, you would hardly imagine a better scenario if you're gonna build name ID than a statewide race, successful or not, a couple of months in advance of a mayor's race to get yourself on everybody's radar screen. Because although she represented a Senate district that that occupied a large portion, not all of the city, but a large portion of it, mm-hmm. she was on the ballot for everybody in San Antonio the last time, was campaigning in every corner of San Antonio last time, and on really the local positioned news herself, all the time. local news all the time. So from a name ID standpoint, she clearly is in a good place. But you know, Taylor has now been mayor for Let's also talk just for a moment about race in this issue. In, 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 in this this race. Uh, race in this race? Race in this race. <laughs> so you have two Latino candidates mm-hmm. running to be mayor of a majority Latino city. You have a black candidate who is currently the interim mayor, the first African-American mayor of San Antonio. And you would think in a race between a Latino candidate and an African-American candidate that a Latino candidate might have the edge right. in a city that is majority Latino. But remember that Will Hurd, a black Republican, sure beat Pete Gallego, a Latino Democrat, to represent much of San Antonio, a city that is majority Latino. And 800 miles of border. Seriously. So so I think that the idea that Ivy Taylor is in this and has been that successful to this point as interim mayor, now she's controversial. She is controversial. Brian Chasnoff lit her up like a Christmas tree the other day in the Express News over not uh, uh, responding to requests of members of the city council to put issues on the agenda. And she's, you know, there's been some controversy over what's happened with Uber and Lyft in San Antonio. She has not, not ruffled feathers, okay? But somehow she's managed to remain in this. And I think, you know, if, again, if, the, if, if polls, the private polls and the discussion of those are to be true, you may be looking at a scenario where come the middle of May and this election happens, Van Depute and Taylor end up in a runoff. And then it would be really interesting to see what happens. All right. Well, there's a story from this week that I would really love to talk about, uh, and that is uh, one of the best read stories uh, written by Edgar Walters, basically about a series of bills that relate to the bathroom. Uh, there have been two bills filed Can't by... imagine why anybody would want to that. <laughs> yeah, right. There have been two bills filed by state rep uh, Debbie Riddle that would make it a crime to enter a public bathroom or locker room designated for a particular gender if you were not that gender at birth, i.e. if you're transgender. Uh, there are two other bills by state rep Gilbert Pena that would let bystanders um, sue transgender people who use pr- these so-called prohibited bathrooms for up to $2,000. For, um, for mental anguish? Uh, yes. So, I mean, <laughs> Additionally. Uh, right. Yes. So what is the motivation here in behind this type of legislation? 
you know, I think it's it's one of the you know it's one of many sort of anti-gay bills that are being are before the legislature right now um, at a time when the future of the state's constitutional ban on same-sex marriage is sort of up in the air. And so it's been interesting to see the amount of these bills out there. But this one in particular, um, there was a GOP activist Steve Hotze in in Houston who said that he kind of kind of asked Riddle to fi- to file this bill and and the way I, ho- he- I hope he did an auto tune. <laughs> <laughs> he has a auto tune his request. The the and and his reasoning, you know, was kind of these are his words, not mine. Calling these people perverts and creeps, and you know, wanting to avoid that and wanting to avoid putting children in a position where someone of the opposite sex would be in the same bathroom. Although, if you're talking about transgender people. You know, if they've transitioned, that sort of gets kind of murky there. And, you know, there's sort of the perception of how would you know? Yeah, there's actually we have had an interesting interview. Uh, Edgar, a reporter, interviewed Kevin O'Reilly, who's a, a transgender staffer at the Capitol, uh, about what it's like to work in a building with folks who are basically trying to ensure that, you know, he doesn't use their bathroom. So O'Reilly uh, transitioned from female to male. And we're going to hear a little sound from that interview. The first two or three months I went to the women's room because I was so obviously female. But by the end of a couple of months, every time I went through the door, my stomach turned. And it became less uncomfortable to go into the men's room where I might get stared at or even glared at uh, as I go in than it was to damage my own self by going into the women's room when I knew I didn't belong there. So serious question, how is it more comfortable to have someone who looks very obviously like a man in the woman's bathroom than it is to have that person in the men's bathroom, (laughs) for starters? (laughs) But uh, I mean, do these types of bills have any legitimate shot in in the legislature? Are they going to move at all? Are they going to get hearings? Well, I believe this one has been referred to state affairs. And some of the... Is state affairs where everything is going to die? <laughs> well, what's interesting... Byron, Byron Cook is psyched. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, some of the other anti-LGBT bills have received a hearing, uh, most specifically those regarding marriage licenses. Um, so I don't know if this one will get a hearing, but I think what's interesting is that Dan Flynn, who's the co-author on on this bill, said, you know, why would sort of the small group of people try to impose something on the majority and people who don't see like them? But it's interesting to me because the LGBT lobby uses that same argument in, in trying to counter Republicans' opposition to same-sex marriage, saying that most people now approve of this. But let, let me come back and play you my golden oldie from about 15 minutes ago. Elections have consequences. That's the difference. The difference is the small group that is imposing a ban on same-sex marriage is the small group that got elected because the small group that got elected had voters who turned out. This come, I mean, you know, if, if this I'm not taking one side or the other on this, I'm just I think the political reality of it, and perhaps you'd agree with this is that if there is a groundswell of support for same-sex marriage in the state, if they believe they have a majority, they got to truck those people to the polls next time. Right. Right, and elect people. I mean, th- th- this, this on so many issues is the deal. We've talked about today is, in the end, the people who turned out to vote ultimately determine what happens, right? And it was the other side. 
All right. Well, speaking of the toilet, that's where Rick Perry's poll numbers are right now. <laughs> uh, that was that was such a bad transition. It is as if Reeve is in fact still hosting. I thought it was a good one. I, I thought it was. Thanks, I thought it was guys. Good. Yeah, sure. yeah, I'm the one who writes their uh, performance reviews, so they have to. Um, all right. So Rick Perry. I just wrote yours. <laughs> right. Yes. Well, uh, let's do a sort of a quick Rick Perry, Ted Cruz lay of the land this week. Rick Perry has been in South Carolina. He spoke at the Citadel. He's been meeting with business leaders and with some even. Evangelicals. Uh, obviously, his polling numbers are pretty low. Washington Post ABC News poll early this week had him, you know, down around like two percent. Uh, what's what's his play right now? Well, the, his his play, first of all, is to hope that the indictment gets kicked because I think the conventional wisdom is he is an asterisk in this race as long as that indictment is a live issue. And if he gets the indictment kicked, he's going to kick out the jams. But I'm not if he sure. Doesn't get honestly, the in- out in the world, well, I'm not sure anybody gives two hon- honestly, anything about Honestly, that. I've back to the toilet. Honestly, <laughs> I've uh, argued with you on this, but I'm yes. beginning to come around to Ross's position, which I'll represent for him <laughs> since he's not here, that the indictment becomes a problem for him if it goes on too long as he attempts to campaign because you're going to have a whole bunch of Republicans who don't want to see him rise in the polls, say more in sadness than anger, it's a shame that my friend Rick Perry has been indicted right. by Democrats in Travis County. It's sort of toilet paper stuck to his shoe. Isn't it also a money problem? You know, how are big donors going to Are big donors going to wait to donate to him thinking that if this indictment doesn't go away, then they just don't want to They want to put money into a candidate who may not get off the ground? Look, I think Perry is doing exactly what he can be doing and should be doing at this point, and that is going around the country, working hard, demonstrating that there is, in fact, a second chance to make a first impression. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me like a set of fables here. Like, we have Ted Cruz, who's, like, abiding by the early bird gets the worm, right? He's the first one out the door. And then we have Rick Perry, who's playing by sort of slow and steady wins the race. Right. He's the tortoise in this. Right. But, you know, let's acknowledge that Cruz's strategy so far has worked for him. It's helped him raise in the polls. Rise up in the polls. There's also uh, today, some fundraising numbers today. Today, Bloomberg Politics announced, uh, uh, re- revealed a, a um, uh, the existence of some super PACs that have been started in Austin, or at least with a treasurer based in Austin that will apparently announce any day now that they've already raised 31 million dollars on behalf of Cruz, which, if I'm not mistaken, is more than he spent during the entire Senate race against David Dubois. It is. Um, you know, but Rand Paul got into race as we sit here Wednesday the eighth. Yesterday. Tuesday the 7th. Marco Rubio is getting in the race on Monday. Um, it is about to be more crowded for Ted Cruz. And while Cruz had for a little while the field to himself as the only announced candidate, it's going to get a little bit harder when there are other people in the race who are not only trying to help themselves rise up, but also to knock him down. Who's more Who's more of a threat this early on between um, Rubio and Paul? Well, Rubio hurts Cruz in one respect and Paul hurts Cruz in another respect. But the thing about Ted Cruz is he doesn't give a crap about anybody else. <laughs> and, and that's one of the ways he's succeeded to this point in politics. If, if He's not about people liking him. He's not about playing by the conventional set of rules, the niceties and the protocols. Right. He does his own thing. Well, and when Cruz is trying to yeah. get the, the attention of people at the far end of the far end. They're going to ultimately gravitate, as they did in the last race, to Santorum to one candidate in this race, and, and what Cruz hopes, I'm going to project this on his campaign, is to be one of the two last ones standing. There's going to be a so-called establishment candidate, mm-hmm. and there's going to be a so-called Tea Party candidate, and he wants to be the so-called Tea Party. Well, it's just hard for me to see who Rick Perry's voters are if he has all these people running to the right of him. 
You know, I mean, between the Jeb Bush candidate who's seen as sort of more moderate establishment Republican and these, you know, Tea Party leaning guys on the right. Rick, Rick Perry wants this to be a race not between left and right within the Republican Party, but between D.C. and not D.C. Mm. He wants to turn Ted Cruz and everybody who represents states in the Senate into the equivalent of Kay Bailey Hutchison in this race. He may ultimately take out of the David Dewhurst playbook that whole you can't spell Ted Cruz without D.C. thing. Didn't work so well for Dewhurst in 2012. But I think the governor versus senator pivot for him would be useful because he can say these guys haven't run anything except their mouths. But then he runs into Jeb Bush. Then he runs into Jeb Bush and Scott Walker. You know, I don't think he worries too much about Chris Christie. He doesn't get a lot of traction in his race probably. He may be too liberal for the Republican Party in perception if not in reality. But Scott Walker and Jeb Bush are a bigger problem for Perry. Perry's problem is – I think what it's been all along, that the last time he ran, it was effectively double-A baseball. And he couldn't beat Herman Cain. This time he's playing major league ball against the equivalent of everybody who can run, who can hit third or fourth in a lineup. This is a very, very uh, a talented big field as opposed to small field. Back to the old uh, San Antonio Mayor's race analogy. This is a field of redwoods and not saplings. So Perry's got to get traction in a very different race this time. He has to raise money to Alexis Point. He has to compete for money that may go to other candidates. And he has to figure out who his voters are. Jennifer Rubin at the Washington Post can blow smoke up his skirt all she wants about how he seems like the mature candidate, the serious candidate. At the end of the day, he has to differentiate himself enough from these other candidates. And I think it's a challenge. All right. Well, if you'd like to blow smoke up our skirts, you can email us at trivcast at texastribune.org. We'd also love it if you supported our crowdfunding campaign to launch a Tribcast spinoff on the 2016 presidential race. You can find the details on our website. And you can now sign up for Tribcast alerts at texastribune.org slash Tribcast. We'd like to thank Shiny Ribs for doing our music. And on behalf of Evan, Alexa, Julian, and our producer, Todd, thanks for listening. Texas talking. 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 Texas talking.